listening to FatCast. I am Leslie, and with me is Marianne, who will say Woo! Woo! <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> oh, I don't think I like that. <laughs> uh, if I was if I was a little more manipulative, I would have tried to make it look like I commanded you to say woo like with my mind. Although I don't know how I would do that on a podcast. I don't like that either. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, no. I'll be nice. I've been I've been terribly abusive to Marianne like all morning, and she just woke up, so her defenses are not really savvy. True, <laughs> my defenses are down. <laughs> so I'm gonna have to try to be nicer. Um, today, today, I know I said I would try. Um, today we are going to talk about food. Um, and food and eating and all of the associated baggage and cultural crap that goes with them. And the one thing actually that I just thought of that sort of might be an interesting point to kick off is um, about fast food. Last month, um, my husband is really, really enjoys his fast food, um, partly because um, he thinks it tastes good and also partly because of the convenience factor like if we're out and we pass like a mcdonald's or whatever he'll be like chicken nugget and (laughs) (laughs) and so we'll go you know and and you know wind up getting something off of their dollar menu or something pretty frequently and i you know it eats up a lot of money and i am not actually like i would find myself eating food that if i were not with him i would totally like be like oh and not eat um, just because I'm not a huge, I, I'm, I'm kind of particular about meat, and I think that's part of my issue with a lot of, like, fast food, um, stuff, because the meat is just not that good. And, um, my so, issue with fast food is that almost every time I eat it, I regret it about 20 minutes later. Yeah. That'll happen. That happens with me and KFC, although KFC is one of, for non-American listeners, KFC is Kentucky Fried Chicken. And, and, <laughs> they, and they actually are KFC now. Like, it's now, not yeah. an acronym. That's their official official name. And there was an urban myth that went around for years after that that said that, like, the FDA, like, made them change it from, KF, from Kentucky Fried Chicken because they weren't allowed to call it chicken anymore because of, like, like horrifying Franken chickens that they were making that like they didn't have I what was the story? I heard the story I think in high school or something. Um that like they were breeding chickens that didn't have beaks or feathers or something. Yeah, it was it was a sort of industrial chicken farming nightmare urban legend. Like. Yeah. Franken chickens. Yeah. <laughs> so one day I was incredibly, incredibly ill and my friend and I who had you know, recovered slightly more than I had from this crap that was going around. We were starving and we decided we were going to go to the KFC. So, you know, we're both jacked up on like DayQuil and NyQuil and whatever cold medicine we can find because we're terribly sick. And I drive the two of us to the local KFC and there's one parking spot left in the parking lot. And I figure, oh, this is meant to be, but I start <laughs> to pull into the parking lot, the parking space, and there is a chicken walking around in it, <laughs> like you, you do, just sort of walk, walk, walking around, and my friend and I look at each other, and we look at the chicken, and we look at each other, and we look at the chicken, and then we went to McDonald's. 
You are such a liar. That did I not happen. I am not a liar. It happened. <laughs> uh, like the chicken scolded you into leaving KFC. I like. I have no idea. I mean, it was in Lake City, which there are people in Lake City who have chickens, but. I mean, the KFC is in this sort of, it's right by the interstate. There's a whole lot of fast food and hotels and that sort of thing. I have no idea how that chicken got there. Maybe, maybe it was a chicken liberation activist. <laughs> it worked. Because <laughs> we had McDonald's that day. Oh, that's hilarious. Um, for three sizes. <laughs> But I was, I was, you know, um, I did have a point I, that I was getting. I'm sorry. I totally derailed you. <laughs> I haven't okay. told that story for years. I haven't even thought about it. That's a great story, actually. And I kind of love that story. And I'm glad that we got to hear it because I completely, <laughs> I'm not sure that I completely believe it's true. I but swear even... <laughs> to like all sorts of things. <laughs> I swear on my vintage torrid pre-pink hot pink mini skirt. Was that was that the dawning of your chicken love? It was not the dawning of my, it, you know, maybe it was the <laughs> dawning of my chicken love. <laughs> Just watching it walk around. They walk funny. It's great. They do. It's kind of odd. They walk like their necks are connected to their legs. Yes, they do. Where they kind of have that. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm doing it, but no one can see me, so it doesn't matter. I'm glad you're doing it because I was as well. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of those moments where we wish we had a video podcast. But anyway, the dawning anyway. of my chicken love actually um, happened in college. My uh, my my BFF. I'm not sure how we started making chicken noises at each other. Mm-hmm. But we made chicken noises at each other, and mm. we have continued to make chicken noises at each other for, I don't know, it's it's too early to do math, <laughs> for many several years. Many several. That's a lot. Isn't it? Well, we... we <laughs> yes, it, it, we met in 97, so we would have started the chicken noises in 1998. So I have been making chicken noises from 1998 to now 2010. That's a lot of years of chickening. Isn't it? Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. That's amazing. But yeah, anyway, my point, <laughs> my actual point being, um, last month I was, you know, as cheap as fast food is, you know, if you're getting it often, it does eat up a lot of, eat up, <laughs> um, <laughs> it does eat up a lot of cash. And you don't get a great return on your investment. You get some, you know, sort of not very, in my opinion, admittedly, not very tasty food. I suppose if you like it a lot, it's totally worth the money. Um, You know, and you're getting it for very little cash, but, you know, you're still having to pass that cash across the counter, in a manner of speaking. So, you know, I last month had said to Dennis that, okay, we're going to do a month without fast food. Just to see if we can, because, you know, love my husband to death, but he is, like, not the most disciplined person on earth. So I'm like, I was just sort to of see the in- look of horror that crossed his face. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, no, no, it, it worked out pretty well that, you know, we both sort of by the end of it were like, 
Well, by the end of it, I think we were both craving chicken nuggets pretty bad. But, you know, at the same time, you know, we were kind of like, yeah, this, you know, it wasn't like we really missed anything over the course of the month. Yeah. And, you know, it, it really is sort of a space filler. Like, that, that's sort of the danger. If you want I mean, danger is probably using way too dramatic a word. But that's, you know. Danger! I know. That's like the appeal, I guess, of places <clears throat> like McDonald's is that you can be out and hungry and you don't have to bother with all of the niceties of finding a restaurant with, you know, decent food and, you know, sitting down at a table and waiting for someone to cook something for you. You can just go and give them, like, a dollar five, and they will hand you a cheeseburger, and, you know, you're okay to, you know, continue rolling along on the rest of your day. Although, if you're me, or, you know, I guess you, then um, you probably will not feel so good for the rest of the day. So, <laughs> by the, but basically, basically, the, the sum total of things was that it I, it was a worthy experiment, and I would actually be really happy to kind of stick with that on a regular basis. But again, that's because I don't personally, individually care for fast food. So I guess if, and also there's the whole, you know, depending on like if you if you've got like a family of five that you're trying to feed, sometimes going to a fast food restaurant is you know what you can do, and that's about it. And I think that, you know, that I, this is part of why I sort of struggle with the idea. Somebody asked me on Formspring a while ago about, you know, like, why are we so, you know, if we're talking about there are no good foods and no bad foods, why are we so sort of apologetic when we eat at McDonald's? And you know, for me, the thing you mentioned about, um, you know, sort of fitting it into your activities is the, the siren song of fast food. Mm-hmm. And it is, at the same time, what makes me apologetic about it, because I hate dealing with it. Like, all of the bullshit about buying food and preparing food and then eating food, that all takes up a lot of fucking time I would rather spend doing something else. Mm-hmm. So when I do, like, elect the fat, the, fa- the fat, the fast food option, <laughs> is a decision based purely on convenience. And because I am making it on convenience, I feel that's that's where my sort of, like, giving myself a hard time about fast food dependency comes from. Mm-hmm. It's not about, you know, the the food being chemically processed. It It is about, you know, I feel sick every time I eat it. It doesn't taste super good. And I choose it anyway because I just don't have time for anything else. And my option often, especially in the morning, is I can eat this or I can just not eat. Mm-hmm. And for some of us, not eating is not an option. I yeah, guess. that's a slippery slope of, like, really bad things for me. So. Yeah. Yeah, because I, and I've known, you're not the only person I've known who, who is like that, that, you know, I've I've known quite a few people in my life who... If they don't have breakfast, then they just will not eat the rest of the day, which can sort of do bad things to you, both physically and mentally. Um, Nor will I be a very nice person for the rest of the day. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, But, you know, I feel like I feel like a lot of the guilt um, for me is about just the fact I think I feel I think I feel fast food guilt mostly because I don't actually like it. 
and I feel like, why am I patronizing a business that produces food? And again, convenience. It's always, anytime I'm there, it's because, well, I was nearby. Like, there, there is no, spe I don't make special trips to go to fucking Wendy's. Like, <laughs> if, if I happen to be nearby, I might for, I'll make a special trip for Chick-fil-A. Um, because <laughs> people who aren't familiar with Chick-fil-A probably have no idea what I'm talking about. Chick-fil-A is a predominantly southern um, fast food joint that surprisingly makes chicken and chicken-related dishes. And um, I grew up with them in Florida and really, really loving on them hardcore. And I, once I moved up here, there's like one Chick-fil-A within like 20 miles of me. So occasionally, uh, I admit I will once in a very great while go to that Chick-fil-A and get like the little nugget box that they have because the nuggets are so good. But generally, that's <laughs> that's not the, that's not a convenience thing. That's more me going someplace because I actually like the food and want to spend my money on it and I will enjoy it as opposed to 99% of the time that I go to McDonald's it's because it was nearby and not because I actually want any of the food and I, I've been trying to get better at just saying you know what I don't want anything on this menu so I'm just not going to get anything and like even if I'm with someone who wants to get something yeah. Maybe that's why I have a hard time thinking of Chick-fil-A in the same class of fast food mm -hmm. as, like, McDonald's, Burger King, whatever. Because I do actually like Chick-fil-A. Yeah. I like, I like, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a lot to like. I used to really have cravings occasionally for um, Arby's, but again, I think that was because that's something that was... They put a crack in their Arby sauce? <laughs> well that's part of it but that was also I think because that was something that I grew up with um you know having at my disposal and um you know I came up here and suddenly you know there is no Arby's like I think there's like one or two Arby's within like a, a fair driving distance from Boston but Arby's isn't even that good well this <laughs> is something This thing comes up, I think, or needs to come up more when we talk about food, which is that for better or for worse, food often has a lot of emotional connotations, especially when it comes to comfort yeah. and feelings of home and memories. And this is not unique to American culture. I mean, this is not unique to our moment in history. And it's a bad thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, comfort eating gets a lot of shit, but I mean, it, it's a it's a it's a physiological reaction when you have a belly full of you know carbohydrates and starch. <laughs> <laughs> it's true though. Here, um, basically, you know, for most of us, and I I don't want to universalize this because I know that it's not universal. Um, but, you know, I feel like for a lot of us, Thanksgiving is, is, is about comfort eating. Um, there is no other sort of, it's not a religious holiday, so it doesn't have any kind of attendant, um, religious stuff. It, but it ultimately, as an American holiday, it is really about getting together with people that you like, not necessarily your family, maybe your chosen family, maybe your blood family, but people you like, 
or maybe sometimes you have to get together with people you don't like, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but really, I mean, that's sort of the thrust of it is getting together with people that you care about and eating a whole lot of food with them and usually some sort of big dead roasted bird. And that, you know, is, I mean, we don't, in Thanksgiving is an interesting um, example too because a lot of what we eat for a Thanksgiving meal, we don't eat any other time of the year. Very few of us roast a turkey unless it's Thanksgiving or, you know, some people will do that for Christmas. Yeah. And that's just not something that, that we do just, you know, well, I mean, I'll, I'll make roast chicken, but even that I think is, there aren't that many people who, you know, make a roast chicken once a week. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, I, I mean, think as, as problematic as the whole, like, colonization of, of the Americas is from a historical perspective, Thanksgiving was designed to be a holiday centered on celebrating bounty and eating yeah and and that's um, and that that's that is kind of unique in american history given our sort of puritanical views on food the rest of the time yeah and it's um, almost it's almost a ritual um in in so far as because the food is so i mean there's i mean we all know and we've all heard stories of people whose families make some kind of you know dish on Thanksgiving that nobody likes, but they make it every year because yes. that's the tradition. Like for some, like some people hate squash, and sometimes people will make squash even though nobody. Li- I actually like squash. I'm a weirdo like that, but whatever. Um, <laughs> like that, or like in um, my family growing up, one of the things that um, used to get made every year was these little like creamed pearl onions. Which, Ew. yeah, like, gross, like, eyeballs in in white, mysterious liquid. Um, but, you know, and I think, like, two people would take, like, two or three of them to be polite, and no one else would eat them. And, you know, I think that that is just, you know, like, that's that's just part of, of how we, we, we frame the experience and the holiday in terms of the kind of food that we're producing and consuming and it, it's comfort in, you know, I mean, I don't, I, there's, there's so many different sides to it because for people who really hate Thanksgiving type food, um, I doubt there is a whole lot of comfort eating. I doubt it's mostly yeah. compulsory. I'm, I'm being polite to my family eating, but I still think that the, the cultural thrust and impetus and purpose of Thanksgiving, whether this was the original intention or not, is to get together and eat. And I yeah. mean, I know that's what I've been hosting Thanksgiving for um, my husband and my fam- my families for like three. This will be my fourth year. And yeah, my you know, like it, it almost becomes sort of frustrating to me because it really is so much of it is about the meal. And because I'm hosting it, I'm the one who's cooking it. So I kind of feel like I would rather just, you know, be able to sit and hang out with everyone than, you know, be, you know, standing in the kitchen peeling potatoes for 40 minutes. So but it's make... not actually about family togetherness. Well, yeah. <laughs> What's funny is that, I mean, my my sort of, my fraught relationship with food and my, my hatred of the necessity for it. I think it's something been pretty plain about. And so my husband does nine-tenths of the cooking. Mm-hmm. But when it's holiday time, I lose my mind. <laughs> like, <laughs> we've 
had people over a couple of times on various holidays when we have been uh, able to visit other family or, you know, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I've, I don't make, like, when my husband comes from home from school and there's food waiting, it is Chinese food that I have ordered. <laughs> you know, I don't make myself cereal. Yeah. He makes fun of me because I won't put cucumbers in the salad that I make for myself because it involves peeling and slicing. Wow. Whereas everything else just involves tossing and throwing. So when I wake up, you know, a couple of days before Christmas or Thanksgiving, and I'm like, okay, we're buying a turkey, you know. <laughs> and then we go through the whole brining process, and, like, it's it's ridiculous shit. Like, I lose my mind, and there's five desserts, and there's side dishes, and there's vegetarian options. And it is the one time, I think, when the whole, like, preparing food as an expression of love for others thing possesses me. That's really, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I've never, I should, I should sort of couch this. Um, my, I grew up, was primarily raised by my dad. And I, like, from a pretty early, I mean, my dad always used to cook for us. But, you know, it, it, in, in, by the time I was, like, either eighth or ninth grade, I decided I was a vegetarian. And my dad is very much not a vegetarian. <laughs> so I started cooking food for myself. Um, and basically, you know, from a certain point in high school, you know, we were, when I was growing up, we would have, you know, meals together pretty reliable and pretty reliably. And even when I started cooking my own food, we would manage to do that pretty frequently. Although as often, you know, I would, we would both wind up eating on our own and it, you know, the whole preparing food for other people, like I never really sort of learned the I guess the 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 sort of cultural indoctrination of you know this is this is a way of expressing love and care for someone um I actually get really resentful sometimes when I have to prepare food like if I'm making dinner I think and I put this back to you know making my own damn food for so long and knowing that I would be the one who would get to eat it but like if I I will make I have and we'll get into this I'm sure that I have major territorial issues with food. Um, but, you know, I'll make dinner for myself, and Dennis will come into the kitchen and be like, you know, hey, what you making? You know, oh, that looks good. Can I have some? And my knee-jerk reaction is always no. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I have spent my whole life, you know, making... Yeah, I, and this I, I do enjoy sort of, like, you know, making something and having people like it, but... Yeah. Like, I have to sort of plan inside my head, I am making this for other people in order for that to happen. Otherwise, it's, you know, I I get really like, no, this is mine. Or like, well, you can have a small bowl. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm really, really, really possessive about it and, and territorial about it. And I, part of that comes from you know, sort of epic dieting history of, you know, having people constantly say, do you need that? Or, you know, you can... Are you sure you... Are are you sure? Yeah. Are you sure? Are you sure you want that? Or you don't need that? Or basically part of it, a huge part of it for me has been 
you know, having spent so much of my life not being trusted to make my own decisions about how to feed myself. And the result of that was that I never learned how to feed myself until like, I was in my 20s. Um, and I basically had to start from scratch because everything, my, my whole sort of history had been of, of, you know, having people always question it or eating in secret, which is something I started doing in middle school. I started eating in secret um, or buying stuff at the, uh, you know, supermarket near my bus stop coming home and I'd smuggle it home and hide it under my bed. And I actually, you know, this was actually something that I did. And, you know, it, it allowed me to feel like I had some control. This is ironic, um, given that dieting is supposed to be all about control. But that was what made me feel like I had control over what I was eating, yeah. that I could make the determination of what I wanted and when I wanted to have it without, you know, sort of having someone standing over my shoulder constantly questioning whether, you know, I actually needed to consume anything being the giant epic fatty that I am. <laughs> I try not to pay too much attention to stuff going on about fat in the news because uh, there's not a whole lot I can do about it. Mm -hmm. And it's just depressing. But the one thing that I cannot uh, sort of avoid and the one thing that like truly makes me despair about the state of our culture is the is the way dieting is being pushed for kids who are younger and younger. Yeah. Because dieting fucks children up. It does. And I mean we there are there are no studies about the physical side effects of dieting when you haven't even started puberty yet. You know, not to mention the psychological effects. And it just I went to the International House of Pancakes for dinner the other night. I hop. <laughs> yes, I hop. It was one of those nights where it was like 9 o'clock and Ed and I were like, oh, we're hungry. <laughs> and I can't deal with breakfast in the morning in large quantity like that. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> food is a little challenging when I first woken up. And so IHOP seemed like a good idea. I just, I wanted, like, I wanted a piece of French toast. <laughs> so we go to IHOP, and I'm flipping through the menu, even though I know what I want. And on the back of the IHOP menu is your standard smarter fare for adults menu. And on the inside back panel is just for kids menu. This is where you order your pancake with a smiley face, that sort of thing. Half of it is now a smarter eating menu. It is a children's diet menu oh. where they suggest that you decorate your pancake with yogurt. Oh, gross. Right? Isn't Seriously. that repulsive? But just the idea, you could get like a junior piece of fish, which is basically baked tilapia from mm -hmm. the IHOP, so you know it's good. Um, <laughs> that was meant to be sarcastic and derisive in case that didn't come out clearly. <laughs> Not that IHOP isn't a stellar restaurant, but I don't know if I trust them with fish. They make a um, good pancake. They make an excellent pancake. They're the international house of pancakes. I just, I don't really like pancakes, so I get French toast. Um, 
the idea that there is a place, and it's not like they're a super, like, cutting-edge restaurant, so there are other restaurants, I'm sure, that have this, but the idea that there is a children's menu for people who have their kids on some sort of calorie or otherwise restrictive diet freaks me right the fuck out. Yeah. Yeah, because... I, I, well, those yeah. of us, those of us who have, you know, it's worth noting that not everyone who, you know, I'm sure listens to um, this podcast or, you know, who is involved in, you know, these kinds of conversations about fat or body, body politics, you know, there is no single universal experience. But for those of us who have had a background as fat kids and being sort of put through um, the ringer even as children and carrying that up through adulthood. Um, it, it's really hard to not see stuff like that and not have this incredible, like, nausea-inducing reaction because, you know, it, it, does, it does become really... It does affect you, and it affects how yeah. you think about food and how you, you know, learn to feed yourself, as I was saying earlier which, you know, was, was such a dramatic issue for me for so freaking long. And, you know, even, even what's ironic is that even when I made space to trust myself and to trust my, my eating decisions, you know, I still, like, I never had this phase where I ate, like, nothing but chocolate frosting and, like, ramen noodles. Like, I never, I always, you know, if I actually am listening to what I want and paying attention to what I want, for me, anyway, you know, it tends to be stuff that makes me feel okay. Yeah. Um, I don't tend to crave food that makes me feel like shit. I'm sure that, you know, there are other circumstances in which that happens for people, but, you know, that's not been my experience. And it sort of makes me angry. Well, not sort of. It does make me angry yeah. <laughs> that, you know, I spent so much time as a kid obsessing over this when this, I mean, frankly, honestly learning to feed oneself should just be an an incontrovertible aspect of growing up and becoming an adult that you know this isn't something that people should be allowed to fuck with um because putting makes, your kids on a diet fucks them up yeah there's period. and there's there's no circumstance in which it does not fuck them up and yeah. if anyone who says well you know i put my kid on a diet but you know she seems to be doing okay you're kidding yourself. Like, just, just recognize that when you're putting your kid, you may be doing it for reasons you think are perfectly, you know, valid. But if you put your kid on a diet and you make, you know, make that a part of that kid's world and, and his or her, you know, sort of understanding of how they eat. Fundamental and, shape of the world that's developing. Exactly. Exactly. And when you make, when you make that this central issue, um, that's going to fuck them up. I mean, and, you know, it's, there's, there's no, it, it's, I'm not, I'm not even saying like, oh, you're a bad person for doing it. I don't know what those circumstances may be. And I, I tend to believe that, you know, most parents tend to be, to do things they do in the best interest of their kids, but don't deny that you're going to fuck them up forever. <laughs> well, I mean, recognize that parents think they're making the right choice because they don't want their kids to grow up fat. They don't want their kids to deal with eventual health crises. I mean, everything the media is sort of pounding into our head, mm -hmm. the sort of quote-unquote logical conclusion for a loving parent is, oh, I need to 
do X, Y, Z, so my child will lose weight and not have to deal with any of this. Although... You know, it, it, it unfortunately doesn't work out like that. Well, I and mean, the very, thing you very... can do for your kid is to let them know that they are loved and just fine the way they are, and that they have all of these options as far as food and physical activity go. Mm-hmm. And, and in fairness, a lot of times um, putting a child on a diet does not result in a skinny adult. <laughs> like that's... Oh, God, no. <laughs> I mean, that's if, if this were, like, something that, you know, worked with, you know, even, like, 80% efficiency or, or 60% efficiency, then I might be a little more understanding about it. But the fact is it doesn't work. Because no. a kid is, a, is fucking growing. The kid is going to put on weight no matter what, because they're growing. And it's it's impossible, arguably, and admittedly, I'm not a fucking doctor, um, but it, it, it seems really sort of difficult to estimate the healthy weight of a child when you don't know how big that child is supposed to be or how big that child is going to become, um, which are, are aspects that are going to contribute. If you have a kid... That, you know, I was always taller than most of the kids in my class growing up. And as a result, you know, when I got put on my first diet, it wasn't even because I was fat by any real, you know, feasible reckoning. I mean, I, I had a little, you know, sort of kid belly, but, you know, lots of my friends did. I wasn't, you know, chubby even yeah. by any, you know, most measurable standards. But I was pretty big for my age. And because I was big for my age, I sized out of the height and weight charts that, you know, for the, where, you know, randomly I'm supposed to be assigned. And that's why I wound up, you know, getting put on a diet when I was eight years old was that, you know, oh, well, she's putting on weight. Well, of course I'm putting on weight. I'm growing. <laughs> In the sixth grade, I, sixth and seventh grade. In sixth and seventh grade, I was five foot four. I started my period. And I weighed 158 pounds. I remember this because I dared to confess it to another friend who was both taller and larger than me. And she was shocked. And I think back on it now and I'm like, you know, I'm 5'4 right now. You know, I, I had sort of, I, I had sort of reached my adult status at that point, <laughs> body-wise. <laughs> And if I weighed 158 pounds now, I would still be considered, you know, porky. Mm-hmm. But I would not. I, I I would not get the same like, you know, weight loss surgery marketing that I get now. Mm-hmm. And and I think about that, and I think about, you know, the diets I was on at the time, and the horror, you know, in my friend's face when I told her how much I weighed, and I think about how. I was the same height, you know, I am as an adult, how I had already, you know, started menstruating um, about how I was horseback riding and running around and doing all of these active things. And I, I think about, you know, I had, in essence, achieved adult body. And it mm-hmm. freaked people the fuck because I was in the sixth and seventh grade. Yeah. And how... All of the dieting for all, and I, mean, I started dieting for that um, in fits and spurts, but how all of the dieting over the years 
all all it did was make me fatter. Yeah. And dieting is no more effective for children than it is for adults, which is to say it's not effective. Well, what, what really sort of freaks me out a little bit is that all of the sort of diet issues and, and diet language and diet pressure that is foisted upon kids, what it really succeeds in doing is socializing them to police their own and others' eating habits. And, you know, I, I think that, like, I think back, and now it's sort of horrifying to me because, you know, I tend we tend to assume that we're relatively innocent as kids, but... I remember being pretty young and having sort of, you know, friends having heated conversations about whether this was okay to eat or whether they had eaten too much of something or, you know, I can have one, you know, mini muffin and then that's it for the rest of the day. And, you know, this was this was like in, this was like late elementary school, early middle school of, you know, all of my friends, fat and otherwise, although fair in fairness, I was always sort of the fattest one of my friends. I was actually usually the fattest one in my class. Um, you know, having these conversations about what is okay to eat and what is not okay to eat and what is a good food and what is a bad food, um, having them this young, it's little wonder that it's so difficult to talk sense to people about this stuff later on in life because for most of us this is a language that we've learned as far back as we can remember that we don't know a way of talking about food and eating that doesn't involve guilt or shame or virtue you know some sort of moral judgment not just a language but a way of relating to food i mean food is your enemy Mm -hmm. And if it has always been your enemy to see it in any other way, especially when you lack the vocabulary. And this just seems the right and normal thing. I mean, it's kind of tragic when you think about it. Like, it's, yeah. we're all so fucked up about food. And when it is such, I can't live without it. You know, when a coworker says to me, that she wishes she could just stop eating. If she could just stop eating, everything would be fine. And she doesn't mean in the overeating sense. <laughs> she just means period. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you can't stop eating. You mm. die if you do. It's yeah. not like quitting smoking. Food, food is an enemy and hunger is an enemy. Like that's something I remember really, really vividly from my youthful dieting years was that that feeling of I need to eat something now was something to be sort of conquered like there's there's a sensation you can get and and I know a lot of of people who have had eating disorders will talk about this too um there's a sensation you get when you reach a point of where your body is just your hunger has become so overwhelming that it doesn't even feel like hunger anymore you actually feel sort of high and lightheaded yeah. Um, which I think is sort of a mammal-based response <laughs> to try to give you an, like, you know, if we were in a jungle, you know, hunting for something to eat, that that would give you the adrenaline boost that you would need to, you know, keep going and find something to feed yourself with so that you would not die. Because, you know, in the, in the end, at the end of the day, for all of our, our, you know, intellectual conversations about these subjects, our bodies are animal and not intellectual, you know, 
machines. Interestingly, and, your body still wants to eat. Yeah, your body does not give a shit about the size of your ass. <laughs> it's like, your listen, bo- bitches, I need some food. <laughs> and there is that sort of, and you can get, like, a, a, you can crave that sort of weird starving yourself sort of high that, you know, like, wow, when I would get that, that sensation, um, you know, as a kid, even as young as, like, 10, 11, 12 years old, I would feel like, oh, I'm doing good. Yeah. Because I'm shaking all over. <laughs> like, this is a good thing that, you know, it means that I've conquered this hunger that, I mean, now I look back and think this is the stupidest thing ever. Hunger is inevitable and unavoidable. It's part of being alive. You get hungry and you eat. And yet we grow up, some of us grow up with this idea that it is this in internal demon that has to be, you know, somehow put down or tied up or restrained what i took it as when i hit that state because you know you you have just enough education to be dangerous thanks to health (laughs) class was that that meant my body would start to use the fat that i had stored Mm -hmm. and that that was good Mm -hmm. because you know obviously i was doing something right 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 and that's that's something I remember that too that you know feeling like stupid fucking body <laughs> like now you have to use this fat yeah. even though technically in in depending on the circumstances your body will actually go to muscle before it goes to fat yeah which is sort of ironic but <laughs> <laughs> but whatever from a from from an angry feminist perspective I uh, I think it is interesting that nobody ever stops and talks about that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the the sort of angry feminist within me is like, well, that's because girls don't have to be strong. Mm-hmm. Nobody, you know, nobody, nobody encourages women to be able to, you know, fuck, open jars for themselves. That sort of thing. Yeah. So. Well, because muscle's not as important. I, Yeah, digesting muscle is just as good as digesting fat because you still weigh less. And And it doesn't matter that you're weaker and less able to take care of yourself because we don't really value that in our society anyway. I also think part of why we don't talk about that is because it really illuminates the unnaturalness of dieting, Mm -hmm. Um, that we're not built to diet and that even and I you know people I, I I love the people who just love to keep screaming incoherently at the top of their lungs calories in calories out Fuck and, a bunch of that and thermodynamics because it's almost like well if it's it's kind of like the Glenn Beck sort of <laughs> mode of of information you know getting information out there that like if you just repeat it enough times somehow magically it will become true even though it's not true and that you know doctors will tell you it's not true people with actual medical you know i had a commenter a while back and i remember the context now but who was one of these you know calories in calories out screamers and i kept saying you know i wasn't even it's not even worth arguing because you know it's it's like a religion it really it has a lot of interesting connections to you know someone being incredibly devoted to a religion where yeah. you can say to someone who is who is an extreme zealot, you know, well, where, you know, how do you know this is true? Well, I just believe it. I just yeah. believe it. And you don't need evidence. And the thing I kept saying to this commenter was, 
bring me a, a reference, that it's not enough to just, you know, I'm not saying you're wrong. Um, I'm just saying bring me even one, I would take one um, reference, medical reference that supports what you're saying unconditionally. And, you know, I, the response that I kept getting was, well, everybody just knows that. Yeah. And it's like, well, you know, there have been a lot of things that everybody just knew over the course of human history. <laughs> and a lot of those things have been really bad things that were very, very wrong. <laughs> so everyone just, you know, the appeal to, you know, mass stupidity is not really a, a supporting argument. It's just not working for me. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it just, we have, and if we talk about the reality of what happens when we diet and we restrict our eating, which the reality being when your body goes into when starvation mode, it, it does go to muscle before it goes to fat because fat is long-term storage. Muscle, it can pick at for a while rather than going to, because the fat is for like, you're starving, like hardcore, gonna die kind of starving. That's, that's ultimately what that tissue was intended to be for. Um, you know, so the reality of this is not something we talk about because it really does highlight that dieting is not something that your body responds to in this, oh, I ate less, but thus I will drop fat now. Because that's not, that's seriously, and anyone who's dieted should be able to tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, and, and also, you know, when, when you have people who die from complications from, like, anorexia, most of the time, and this is horrible, most of the time um, when people wind up succumbing to that, it's because the, the repeated starvation has actually cannibalized the cardiac muscle, yeah. and they die from, you know, cardiac, uh, I don't know if it's cardiac arrest, but, you know, basically their heart picks out on them. Yeah. Um, that's, that's the extent to which, <laughs> you know, your body will go to try to keep you moving, is it will cannibalize all of the muscle that it possibly can, and that, because these are not, you know, this is, this is, why we're fatter, if we are fatter, but why we're fatter today than we have been in recent memory is... And also why we're taller. Yeah. Is a complex issue. It's not just, oh, we eat too much. Because there's nothing in this world that is that straightforward. I mean, that's that's just the reality of the beast. There are a lot of issues that are sort of intersecting, and I don't have a, a clear and easy answer. I can talk about why I think I individually am fat. But that's not speaking to the experience of every fat person everywhere because there are a lot of us and we all have different lives and backgrounds. And I think at the end of the day, there are lots of different reasons. There is no one reason. Yeah. And, you know, <clears throat> excuse me. I personally don't really care why people are fat. Mm -hmm. I mean... I know that it is human nature to question and to seek out answers and new civilizations. And um, <laughs> boldly to boldly go. go. <laughs> <laughs> and, and to do that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, I think the why of it doesn't matter mm -hmm. if we're just going to try to use it as a bludgeon to treat people poorly. Yeah. I mean, if... If someone being insulin resistant is the way you justify not providing them with adequate medical treatment and telling them they're not allowed to have nice things, that's that's a problem for me. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's at that point, it's not really about genuinely asking why they're fat. It's about 
we need to know why they're bad people so we can justify treating them poorly. And I think particularly bringing up stuff like insulin resistance kind of brings us back to the whole good food, bad food, guilt, um, virtue setup. Because, yeah. you know, there is so much, there are a lot of people who argue that, um, you know, it's, it's the, the means of production today that are making us fat. That it has to do with hormones in our cows and it has to do with, the fact that um, high fructose corn syrup is in pretty much every fucking thing that you can pick up at the supermarket. Chemicals and, and lab-related foods yeah. and et cetera, et cetera. And the corn, the corn syrup thing may or may not have merit because that apparently, I mean, that, that I've, I've seen some pretty compelling research that says, yeah, this actually really does have some, not necessarily fat-related, but exclusively but you know that it does have some unfortunate health effects that you know when we're eating it in volume as we are if it were more if it were more, used more moderately it'd probably be as it has been in decades past um it probably would be less of a problem but because it's in everything um you know there's sort of there's a lot of argument that you know this could be why you know childhood fatness is on you know the rise and you know that that there's a lot of people who hypothesize this and you know it's sort of it's sort of hard because on the one hand i really ferociously want to argue that there are no good foods and there are no bad foods but then when you have something that comes in like i don't know like mad cow tainted hamburgers <laughs> <laughs> like well okay that is a bad food. you know i you know how i hate to get on my high horse i do know you hate because you're short and it it takes effort <laughs> Oh, <laughs> we were need, doing so well. You need time. a little step stool. Oh, <laughs> like Napoleon. <laughs> but you know what? I, the good thing I... about this, the good thing here is that I just created a visual of you dressed up like Napoleon, but maybe with Adam Ant makeup on. I okay. I can get behind. <laughs> Now I'm torn between, like, oh, and ooh. <laughs> he had a good hat. He did. Anyway. And he had epaulets. <laughs> I'm, I'm really into epaulets. <laughs> did I tell you I have a shirt with them now? And I wore it. And Ed was like, I think you might outrank me now. And I'm like, yes, I think I do. <laughs> so he calls me captain when I wear it. Excellent. <sighs> <laughs> anyway, anyway, I, I, I hate to get up on my high horse, but I'm going to do it anyway because kick ass. Um, I I am often asked about my opinion of the Michael Pollan books, mm. and while there are some problematic things, and I think he um, paints ob the obesity crisis with far too simple a brush. I do think the research that he has done into um, sort of the history of food science in America is really valuable. And Can you sum that up a little bit? Because I have not read them and I only have a vague idea. Yes, I can, because I was about to. <laughs> Basically, when, when we talk about food science in America, um, we're talking about a couple of things. One thing we're talking about sort of crop enhance, quote unquote enhancement um, to make crops produce more in less time. 
And so you wind up with food that grows bigger and faster. But, like, one of the things going on with plants is that they need time to develop in order to be more nutritious when we eat them. Like, we are, in essence, eating the energy that the plants have stored. If they have only taken a week and a half to come to maturity, they haven't had a lot of time to store energy, particularly relative to their size, mm-hmm. you know, if we're making them bigger. So the food that we are growing is cheap and plentiful and quickly produced, but it is less nutritionally dense than many other foods um, that, that have previously been produced or older varieties of things. You know, everybody talks about, oh, I can really taste the difference between an, an organic fucking tomato and, a, you know, a tomato that I got at Publix or whatever. But it, it's more than just their flavor profile that is different, um, especially when you're talking about heirloom tomatoes that um, sort of have a, a, a an unbroken history of this is the way this tomato has been grown for 60 years. Right. Um, Excuse me. We're also talking about the way we break food down into its composite minerals and nutrients and hypothetical ingredients. Um, You see it really clearly illustrated with formula. Uh, Babies who are formula fed tend not to thrive as well as babies who are breastfed. Mm -hmm. And, Over the years, you know, profile of nutrition offered by baby formula has changed radically because over the years, as science has, you know, broken things down more and more successfully, we have realized, oh, this is not a complete nutritional match. We need to put X, Y, Z in there. Right. So the demonstrated history of sort of manufactured foods is they do not contain everything that the natural food contains. And that even though we're all like, woo, check us out now, you know, the, the smart money is on. We still are missing some things. And that's why still babies being fed formula don't thrive the same way statistically babies fed breast milk do. You know, there is something different in the manufactured product and the natural product. And I'm not all like, everybody should breastfeed because I'm not a mother and I'm not making those choices for anybody. But from a food science perspective, it's a really interesting example. So when we have our sort of manufactured foods, which for a long time the FDA did not allow to be, you know, called the same thing even, um, we're not eating the same thing that we would if, like, your your low-fat, low-carb loaf of bread may supposedly have all the necessary nutrients, but they probably don't work together and interact the same way that they do in a regular loaf of bread that someone has made. Mm-hmm. And that potentially has a much larger impact on the way our body responds to it 
than people really want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Because we want to talk about, oh, you know, I'm eating this low-fat lifestyle, but, you know, the the nutritional profile on the side of the box is, is not the full story when it comes to food. Yeah. I, I have hit this point where a lot of times when I eat food out of a box, I feel like I'm eating plastic. <laughs> I do that, too. And <laughs> And it's kind of backfired because, you know... I resent the time that it takes to make actual food. And so I look longingly at the box of scalloped potatoes. And Oh, God, I can't even look at that. Even thinking about this makes me... I'm sorry, people who love your box of potatoes. Oh, ugh, gross. <laughs> but that's the sort of thing I grew up on. I mean, we were a fast food family. Both my parents worked. I ate a lot of Taco Bell, a lot of KFC, a lot of you know, whatever was in a box because that was quick and easy. And, you know, so that's what my taste was for. There are still, I mean, you will never pry my craft mac and cheese from my my <laughs> old fingers. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we sort of develop a taste for that. And since that is the bulk of our food consumption, you know, sometimes the natural stuff doesn't even taste right. Mm-hmm. You know, doesn't taste good, but I don't know, like, with with my whole food allergy situation, you know, I'm, I'm better off eating, I guess, whole foods, but it, it's such a pain in the ass. Well, and it is, it is so interesting to realize that, yes, these sort of industrially produced foods are, are vastly different, and even though, you know, you look on the back of the box and it gives you the breakdown of calories and nutrients and that sort of thing, it, we, we don't actually know how that is coming together to, to work in our bodies. What's really, really interesting here is that most of this sort of, what's the word I'm looking for, this sort of um, universalizing of nutritional standards um, in, in a given food goes back to, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, around just before the turn of the century, um, you know, the late 1800s. Actually, now when I say the turn of the century, I could mean um, the Yes, wow. you. Yeah, no, I'm talking about the 1800s. <laughs> um, there's a really great book by a woman. I think her name is, ooh, I think it's Laura Shapiro, but I could be wrong. Um, I'll link it in the show notes, but it's called Perfection Salad, and it's sort of a history of food and and domestic science in the U.S., and it's fascinating. And one of the things that I really brought away from it that I use a lot, you know, in general when we're talking about food and weight and and virtue and and guilt um, was that, you know, there was this movement at the time in in this domestic science developing world where they wanted food to be standardized. It was really important that food be standardized so that anything that, you know, you eat, if you have a, you know, a certain type of of soup, that that soup should be relatively universally prepared in the same way and provide you with the same nutritional, you know, same nutritional content, um, you know, no matter whether you're getting the first bowl or the last bowl or whether it's the first batch or it's a batch you make a week later. 
And this is this era and a little and later um, as this sort of I mean this has been going on for and this ultimately probably comes to where we are today in terms of trying like you were saying trying to produce more food in less time. Um, it 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 around you know sort of the earlier part of the 20th century. This is where we got stuff like white sauce and American cheese, yeah, because they were uniform food products. Um, they were always the same. And now those of us who actually like cheese, look at American cheese, are in like, oh, because it is. It's it's like plastic cheese, basically. <laughs> and I'm talking about like the American cheese that comes in like the individual cellophane wrappers, and it's like bright orange. Um, that sort of evolved as a result because actual aged cheese was not predictable. You know, sometimes it would be, you know, different batches might taste a little different. They might have different makeups depending on how they were aged or who made them or where they came from. And, you know, things like American cheese came out of that movement because we had this desire. And also, back when people would make, put anything in gelatin and call it a salad, um, <sighs> including like chicken. And mayonnaise. <laughs> oh, stop, stop, stop. I, I, I love, like, the history of food horrors. I have many books on the subject. But the idea was to create these sort of uniform dishes. And it's fascinating because in the process, I mean, it sort of started with the idea that we want to be able to predict that anyone who makes, you know, a certain dish is going to get um, a certain nutritional value from that dish. A lot of this was aimed at immigrant populations who, you know, unfortunate, you know, sort of white privilege shit where, you know, well, obviously they're too stupid to know how to feed themselves, so we have to tell them how to feed themselves yeah. and, and not, you know, so that they can be strong and do all the shit work that we don't want to do. Um, <laughs> when, you know, it was it was sort of trying to make this nutritional, and this is where we get things like the food pyramid, um, ultimately, that trying to establish these nutritional standards. And somehow along the path of doing that, we kind of lost track of actually producing tasty food. Um, and and that it, it sort of bewilders me because, like you said, you know, if you get a tomato at, you know, there are differences between a, an heirloom tomato that you get from someone, you know, who actually has a farm versus a tomato that you get at the supermarket that probably came from South America and, you know, has been on a plane for the past three days or on a truck or whatever, um, there are, you know, sort of differences in, in low, and I'm, I'm not a huge locavore, locavore, I guess is the word. Yeah. <clears throat> but I think that there are, you know, there's something to be said about having an awareness of that, of having an awareness of where your food is coming from, because it may, we're, we're so divorced in this very sort of Karl Marx way, we're so divorced from where our food actually comes from and how it gets to us and we don't think about it and i think that you know there is a benefit to actually having some kind even if you're i'm still because I mean, i'm still going to buy you know mangoes from south america because where the hell else am i going to get a mango in boston <laughs> i mean it's just not going to happen i but think that, <laughs> i think that's one reason that um whole foods really do serve as a frustrating thing for a lot of people who are dieting because you don't know how many calories is in that banana yeah you know you don't know how much energy you're actually going to get from that piece of corn mm -hmm. um everything varies wildly in size in you know 
what that particular growing season was like is going to have an impact on what sort of nutritional profile, you know, any given piece of food has. It's, well, this, um, yeah, it, it's maddeningly out of control. This movement, you know, sort of was trying to encourage people to eat in a scientific way. And ultimately, that led to dieting. And ultimately, that's led yeah. to our reliance on the nutritional facts window on the back of every box of anything that we ever buy. And having that reliance means, like you said, a, a, a food, whole foods of any kind are sort of foreign and weird. Like, well, what's in it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, there's no ingredients list on this bunch of kale. You know, I don't know <laughs> what I'm actually getting when I buy it or what the hell I'm supposed to do with it when I get it home. Yeah. Whereas, you know, you buy a box or something and it has instructions. And I think that, you know, this, this, it started off, it, it may have started off as all of these things always do with the best of intentions If we're going to be scientific and we're going to make sure we have a good, healthy, strong workforce in the U.S. and yay, America. And it somewhere just got so off track that we don't even know what we're eating anymore. And it's all been you know, sort of dehydrated and, and assembled and stuffed into cardboard boxes and little plastic baggies. And again... Which is not to say you can't, like, cook the hell out of some vegetables yeah. and, and decrease their nutritional value as Absolutely. well. Absolutely, yeah. Because the way you prepare your food also has an impact on what you get out of it. Mm -hmm. And I am certainly not, like, a raw food proponent because I, like... I like food that's cooked. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's that's cool that some people are, are into the raw. And <laughs> that's not what I meant. <laughs> Dirty. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. She's not really sorry at all. <laughs> Do you hear her giggling? She's not uh... sorry at all. Who are into raw food. Um, I tend to... Uh, be a little more, I think, into local produce than you do, Leslie. But, I mean, I have that luxury. Well, you live in Florida. Florida. <laughs> you live in Florida. When I lived in Florida, I was very into local produce. Local produce up here means, like, I'm not even going to get into it. It's it's sad. I get a lot of good greens, though, which is nice. Yeah, which we don't get here. I mean, yeah. when I went to the farmer's market in Madison, I was amazed at the variety of lettuces mm -hmm. and leafy things that I couldn't even identify. Yeah. Because it takes a climate that we just don't have. And we also have apple trees, which is awesome in the fall because apple picking is the greatest thing ever. <laughs> Does it actually involve, like, climbing a tree? No, most places, well, it depends on where you go. Most places tend to have little, um, their picking areas will have trees that are like, you know, maybe a foot or two, well, okay, I guess a foot or two taller than you. I was going to say, well, they might be taller still. Leslie, I <laughs> I don't think we can be friends anymore. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, I'm breaking sorry. up with you. <laughs> oh, it's just so easy. Oh, <laughs> that's what she said. Um, I don't remember. Oh, yeah, but most of them are short, and you can just, you know, you don't have to climb. You can just grab the apples. I mean, because apple picking is also really popular with kids, like little yeah. kids. So they want to make sure that the trees are low enough to the ground that the kids can actually 
you know, pick apples without climbing and breaking their neck and then suing the orchard. <laughs> I, I only ask because I don't know that I've ever seen, like, an apple tree in person, so. The first time, I only saw one in person a couple of years ago, because I, you know, I've lived up here for over a decade now, but I only went apple picking for the first time maybe three or four years ago, and it was sort of magical, which is stupid, because, like, growing up, I saw orange trees all the time. Like, I was aware yeah. that oranges grew on fucking trees. Um, and I was likewise aware in an intellectual sense that apples grow on trees. But again, sort of going back to that whole being divorced from where our food comes from thing, the first time I actually saw a tree with apples on it, I was, and, and my husband was with me, and he's looking at me like I'm a crazy person, but I'm like, like, look, there are apples on a tree. <laughs> like, I was just so, like, it was, it was magical and amazing. Like, oh, look, they don't, they're not made in a factory. They actually, <laughs> they actually do grow on a tree. And there is something really, really, you know, cool and fun. And I, I get so happy when I see kids at these orchards sort of having this experience of, you know, actually picking food. Um, yeah, it just, it sort of fascinates me because we don't, particularly, you know, you and I, we live in pretty urban areas. You have a lot more, you you have more um, exposure to less urban areas than I do because I know you have reasons to drive through central northern Florida more often, <clears throat> which can be very rural. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's because, you know, I live in this very urbanized space, you know, farms and food production, to me, may as well happen on the moon, like, so far as my connection and awareness of it is. Well, because here's the other thing that, that is related to that, um, because we keep talking about vegetables, but I think, <clears throat> particularly in urban America, and particularly as people who eat meat, if we are people who eat meat, we are so divorced from where that meat comes from. Yeah is actively, actively healthy mm -hmm. because a lot of industrialized meat production is problematic, both ethically, you know, in a, the way we treat our food animals sort of way and in a skeevy businessy sort of way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I had, I have uncles who hunt. Um, and so I am used to, like, I grew up eating, you know, the fruits of that hunting Mm -hmm. And I know that a lot of people who have no ethical objection to eating meat are still incapable of thinking about where that meat comes from. And I think that's something we really need to break down in our society, because if you cannot connect that chicken breast with a chicken, mm -hmm. I mean, the, the reality is that came from that. And we need to, you know, either be capable of dealing with that or make the choice not to eat meat. Mm. Because if you're just sort of la 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 not thinking about it, that that's sort of, I think, what has given factory farming, um, the factory farming of animals, so much leeway. Basically a free pass. Yes, a free pass. Because, because nobody wants to think about the live animals from which their meat comes from the the people who manufacture that live meat can do whatever the fuck they want and yeah. they do some pretty terrible things um i've seen i've really i really 
um, can speak to this pretty personally because having been, I was a really strict vegetarian for many, many years, and I've read Diet for a New America, and I have a pretty good um, understanding of a lot of the historic and current issues around meat production. Yeah. And what's interesting, too, about that is that in, in the height of my vegetarianism, um, you know, I was similarly opposed to hunting because I was like, oh, it's barbaric. You go and shoot an animal. Um, but then one summer I went and visited my aunt and uncle in Tennessee who routinely hunt, not for sport, but they actually will go and hunt and take the animal they've killed yeah. and bring it home and take the meat off of it and put the meat in their big giant freezer and, and eat will it. eat it Yeah, for, for, you know, many, many months afterwards. <clears throat> and that really, even as a hardcore vegetarian, having seen how they did things really had a profound effect on me, and I stopped being opposed to hunting, which I would never have expected. But actually yeah. seeing that, you know, these are, it's fascinating because we would go out for, like, walks, and they lived in a very, very rural area, like, like do you hear banjos kind of rural? Mm-hmm. And we would go out on these walks, and I would realize that, like, they knew the name of every plant, every bird, every freaking insect, every animal, everything in the area. They were so aware of their natural sort of regional ecology and everything that went into it. And they were incredibly, you know, as, as hunters, they were incredibly respectful. You know, they weren't these, you know, drunk people going into the woods, dropping beer cans as they go. Um, you know, they would go and they would, you know, this was, they would find a deer and they would kill the deer and they would take the deer home. And yeah, it's sad because deers have those big eyes and they look like, oh no, don't kill me. I'm just a deer. But, (laughs) but you know, I mean, this was, and it was hard for me to be like, yeah, this is so much worse than some agricultural titan making bazillions of dollars like Jim Perdue, um, you know, off of these factory farming methods in which chickens never see the sun in the course of their whole lives. Um, yeah, it's or, kind of... oh, this is so much worse than, you know, clear-cutting rainforests so that we can grow soybeans. Yes, exactly. And it was, it was really, you know, I, I'm, I'm happy that I had the awareness as a know-it-all 16-year-old to, you know, sort of be, to, to be able to change my mind yeah. based on having seen, you know, what they did. And, and that was a really... That was really fascinating for me. That wasn't when I, I went back to eating meat. I went back to eating meat years later. But, um, but yeah, it was just sort of, I, I can't, you know, as much as, like, yeah, I'll still make fun of Sarah Palin for shooting wolves from a helicopter because yeah, cause... you're not going to eat a wolf and you're doing it from a helicopter. Like, that's not a fair fight. <laughs> well, also, I mean, hunting wolves is, hunting wolves, it unbalances everything because the wolves prey on the deer and when the wolf population is decimated, the deer population explodes and then all of a sudden you have deer eating your human produce and then you have to have organized, you know, sort of deer depopulation events and it just fucks everything up. Yeah. You know, but people also overhunt deer and then there's not enough deer for the wolves to eat and it's... And that's sort of that's sort of the main thrust of it for me was that I still think sport hunting is pretty stupid. If you're just yeah. going out to shoot something because you think it's fun to shoot a, a living creature, that's I don't want to live next to next door to you. I guess I have no problem with sport shooting when you're shooting at targets or yeah, you yeah. know all sorts but, of things because shooting can be fun, yeah. but you don't actually have to shoot an animal, right? And that you know, but for people who 
you know, I have enormous respect for, because, and I mean, in fairness, I had gone to visit these relatives thinking like, wow, these people are going to be hicks and I'm going to be miserable. And <laughs> which again, I was a snotty 16 year old. So it's kind of not, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable admitting that. Yeah. Um, but I kind of walked away from it thinking, you know what? Yeah, they're, they're not as sophisticated as I like to imagine I am, you know, <laughs> living where I live, but they know a hell of a lot more about a lot of shit than I ever will. Yeah. And it was, it was a really, you know, it was sort of a don't judge a book by its cover moment, Leslie. <laughs> <laughs> this is your lesson, Leslie. Pay heed. <laughs> well, I think we, I think we get very attached to baby animals. Mm-hmm. And we don't want to think about them as food because we focus on the individual animal. I mean, we all pull a Charlotte's Web. <laughs> and for those don't who've never read me. Charlotte's Web, it's a story about a little pig named Wilbur. And Fern, the daughter of a farmer, takes care of this baby runt pig from the time it is born until the time all of its baby pig brothers and sisters are sent to the slaughterhouse for ham. Mm-hmm. And she freaks out, and they thus give her this pig. Anyway. Um, <laughs> you know, but but we sort of identify and anthropomorphize, and we don't want to think about it. But, yeah. I mean, it's one of those things, I think, that if you are honestly respectful of other living creatures, you do need to think about it, and you do sort of have to be aware that this is... The the it's the circle of life, y'all. It moves us all. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting too because we all have lines that we draw. Like to this day, I, yeah. I will not eat veal anymore. I haven't we're had just, veal. We're really mean to veal. You were really really mean to veal, and I haven't had it so. probably since I was a teenager before I actually knew what veal was. Yeah. Um, I just can't. Like I know it's tender and delicious. I'm aware. Um, but I cannot bring myself to order and eat it because it's like every bite tastes of guilt. (laughs) So, you know, that's something. And yet, you know, I also know that pigs are brutalized and are highly intelligent animals and should not be treated like crap in the way that they are in, you know, factory farms. And yet I cannot give up bacon. Yeah. So (laughs) I think that we all have, you know, I, I think the best thing we can hope for is for all of us to have at least that awareness and then to draw our own lines and to decide what I'm okay with and what I'm not. And if that means you're going to be a vegan, um, that's awesome. That's awesome for you, and I have enormous respect for you. If you decide you're going to be lacto-ovo-vegetarian, that's awesome too. Um, if you decide you're going to eat any kind of animal that you can catch, that's fine as well, <laughs> as long as you're making that decision with some sort of knowledge behind it and not just out of like a a blindness to the reality of where all of this comes from because that that unwillingness to 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 recognize um the source of so much of our food results in you know things sort of the status quo remaining as it is and you know there's pretty much no hope of anything improving i try to source meat from like more ethical producers. Mm-hmm. Um, I find myself when Fisk, and, and I mean, that's one of the things that has to be acknowledged about it, and even Michael Pollan acknowledges it, is that it's really fucking expensive to eat, you know, an ethical whole food diet. Yeah. It's 
expensive both in money and in time and effort. Yeah. Um, I source a lot of meat from kosher and halal butchers that are local to me. You know, A, I'm incredibly privileged to have not one but two, you know, sort of um, religious traditions around me that involve treating animals well and slaughtering them humanely and that sort of thing. Um, you know, in, in a less diverse community, you're, you're, you're fucked. You're um, well, yeah. There, there are some organic ranches, basically, um, that are a little further north that I'm that I'm sort of in the process of investigating because, you know, they, they treat their animals well and I would rather have because again, even if you're even if you're not a bleeding heart liberal who's all like, Oh, the poor animals nutritionally speaking, there is a difference between, you know, a grass fed cow and a factory farmed cow. Mm-hmm. That sort of thing. Um and if you're wanting to get the sort of most most nutritional bang for your buck, you know, th- these options are, are also valid. But you have to buy, like, a whole cow, <laughs> and I don't have room for that kind of beef. You need a chest freezer. <laughs> I do need a chest freezer, but I also need somebody who wants to buy, like, half a cow with me. So if mm. you're in the central Florida area and you're looking to buy half, half a cow, cow of organic, grass-fed, you know, well-treated meat, let me know. Um <laughs> But, I mean, it takes, you know, the money to buy half a cow. It takes the time and energy to research where you can even, you know, access that sort of thing. So these are not these are not cheap options. They're not necessarily dollar for dollar more expensive, depending on where you are. Like, I find in Florida that my organic local farmer's market produce is cheaper than what I would buy in a store. Mm-hmm. But that is not true by a long shot everywhere. Yeah. I think ultimately what we're, we keep coming around to here is that there are so many, at least in American culture, and I would assume in a lot of you know other so-called developed nations, um, there are so many factors at play here <clears throat> that are working toward divorcing us from an awareness of what we eat. Um, I think that diet culture does that. I think that, you know, having this gap between, um, you know, the, our, our understanding of the food, where the food that we buy at the supermarket actually came from and how it got to us also contributes to this, this sort of blissful ignorance of what it is we're eating and what went into, and this, this works from, you know, sort of an ecological standpoint, too, that there's a lot of other stuff that goes into the transportation of food um, that comes to you from South America that, you know, makes that food a little more expensive to the planet than you might realize. And I think that we just have this, this incredible lack of, you know, it's like we, we tend to, and I'm as guilty of this as anyone that, you know, we tend to just assume that the food at the supermarket just somehow sprouts there overnight (laughs) magically on the shelves. And, you know, we don't really think about what was involved in producing it and transporting it and everything else that's in, you know, that goes into bringing it to you. And that is more than, you know, food being virtuous or food being evil you know, or, or guilt-inducing, I think that that is, is a, a huge cultural block 
for us. It keeps us from it keeps us from eating healthfully, um, as healthfully as you know we choose to eat, and it sort of keeps us from enjoying the food that we eat um, as much as we might otherwise do. Yeah, I, I think th that the whole good food bad debate contributes to all of that because it it it's very it's very reductivist mm -hmm. you know this food is a good food this food is a bad food cut and dried black and white never mind any of that other nonsense oh yeah you know it it breaks it down into such small categories that the much much larger picture of food as a whole um and that means nutritionally and experientially both you know, just, just gets erased. Yeah, like carrots are not uniformly good and cake is not uniformly bad. That, yeah. you know, carrots are good if you like them and if you, you know, prepare them uh, in a way that makes you happy and they taste good to you. You know um, what's even better? Hmm. Carrot cake. I was getting to that! Because <laughs> <laughs> then you have the carrots and the cake. <laughs> I actually like, really like carrots. I enjoy them a great deal. I love carrots, and that's sort of the thing that, you know, we have this, this uh, you know, sort of cultural assumption that, that rabbit food, so derisively called, is, like, not delicious. And that's crazy pants to me. I mean, carrots steamed gently and then with some butter and some fresh dill are the most amazing, delicious. Like, I could eat a bowl of that for dinner and be perfectly content. I disdain now, your cooked carrots. They're too sweet for me once you cook them. I like them raw and crunchy, perhaps with a dill-based dip. That would work, too. Actually, that's a really good idea. I should try that. Oh, God, it's so good. <laughs> it's so good. We we flirted with growing herbs for a while there before it just got too hot and everything mm -hmm. burnt to a crisp. Mm -hmm. And homegrown dill that you've, like, gone out and picked and then chopped. Like, yeah. Fresh, fresh herbs are better. And yep. you don't get any fresher than going and picking it and chopping it. So, yeah. And they're pretty pretty easy to grow. My dill went, like, my dill just hated me this year. Like, it's, it's out there being sad and brown even as we speak. Our because... dill, like, <laughs> shot up. It was, like, four feet tall. Wow. Yeah, it was crazy. And then we weren't sure how to. Herbs are weird. You have to, like, prune them back and do things with them. Mm -hmm. You know what's really funny is that, like, I, I sit and I look at my computer screen, and then when I, like, speak directly to the audience in an aside, mm -hmm. I actually physically turn my body <laughs> as though I'm addressing someone, <laughs> someone aside. That's, like, the cutest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I just realized I was doing it because all of a sudden I was talking to my closet, and I was like, that's the listeners aren't in my closet. <laughs> there would be no room for them. <sighs> anyway, so, I, I think we've pretty much covered um, this. Subject. I think there are lots of other things we could talk about with food, but I think this is a good first food discussion. Yeah, I think we will definitely visit this because I also wanted to talk um, at some point in the future about specifically eating. Yeah. Because there's a lot of stuff that goes along with the act and the social or the non-social aspects of that. So yeah. maybe we'll do a part two where we sort of address all the stuff that we did not address in this pretty long uh, episode. So. Well, I think as as we talk about these things, we we sort of, I don't know. We think start... of stuff that, yeah, we think of other stuff to talk about. So. Yeah. 
Yeah. So um, unless you have anything to add, I think we can wrap it up. You you know what I do think is funny? What What I think is really, really funny is that one of the primary criticisms of fat acceptance is, oh, you're just giving up so you can eat bonbons all day. But one of the sort of central tenets of fat acceptance, as you know, as I think the two of us practice it, is being aware of all of this shit. It is hard, but I mean, you have to take control of your own health and know things about your body and food and how not only how your body responds to certain foods, but, you know, these sort of larger global issues of food ethics. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's so much more work than <laughs> dieting was. I mean, dieting was a miserable, horrible, grinding experience, but it was a tiny little narrow world. Yeah, and it was all prescribed by someone else. So yes. if somebody else made all the rules, all you had to do was follow them. Yes. Whereas as quote-unquote giving up, which I actually like the idea of giving up is associated with it because I think you are giving a lot of bullshit up. Yes. Um, you know, giving up is more about, okay, I'm going to have to start from scratch and <laughs> figure all of this out on my own. With yes, I knowledge. have to relearn self-image. I yep. have to relearn dressing myself. I have to relearn eating. I have to relearn And to do doctors. it all with, with the tacit understanding that it's not going to be universal, that nobody, you know, hypothetically, nobody can tell you what is right for you, that you have to figure it out. And yeah. that's, that is a lot of work. Yes. And a... for the record, I've never had a bonbon in my life. I'm not and entirely sure what a bonbon is. I don't know what one is. I think if one came up and, like, bit me on the ankle, I wouldn't recognize it. If one came up and bit me on the ankle, I certainly wouldn't identify it as a bonbon because I don't <laughs> think those have feet. <laughs> well, maybe they could hop. <laughs> and I'd be like, is that a chihuahua? <laughs> All right. You have been listening to FatCast, and I am Leslie Kinzel. I am Marianne Kirby. Thanks for listening. Somewhere there's music.